1: Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley, It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology and life. I've got a really good episode today that I've been very excited about. Recording and then releasing ever since I first arranged it, about six months ago, I saw some coverage, which was delving into the latest research on workplace culture. And from that, I was acquainted with Nick Bloom, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Uh, certainly one of the world's leading experts studying how we're working from home and... Today's guest has got a slightly different perspective of Nick. I think Nick would define his perspective that hybrid working, he liked it, it's working pretty well. Whereas today's guest, Professor Prithviraj Chowdhury, Raj to his friends, has got a slightly different take. And the quotation that really stood out to me, I'm going to repeat it to him as we go. But there are two kinds of companies, he said. One is going to embrace work from anywhere, and the second is in denial. I feel those companies will lose their workforce. You have to make a choice as a leader what kind of company you want to lead. So, Raj Chowdhury teaches at the Harvard Business School. He wrote a a Harvard Business Review article about this that I've linked to in the show notes. And I think you're going to find this a really intriguing discussion because it's a fearful prospect, right? The idea that we're all going to work from anywhere and that is inevitable certainly isn't the mainstream feeling of what's going on right now. In fact, you know, I'm hearing from people who are bemoaning the way that we're trying to make hybrid work. Is this an inevitability? Well, he says yes. Why? Because top talent normally sets the trends that the rest of the workplace gradually adopt. And we saw it with different technologies. We're going to discuss it in the podcast. But unless we lean into this and imagine the implications of this, then we're not reengineering ourselves. Agree or disagree, I think you're going to find this discussion fascinating. And I wonder if by the end you aren't going to be in a situation where you're tending to see that this is a trend that we can't avoid. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to chat to Professor Raj Chowdhury and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's jump in. Truly delighted to be talking to you today. Um, I wonder if you could kick us off by introducing who
0: you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, So thank you, Bruce, for having me. My name is Prithviraj Chaudhary. I go by Raj. I'm an associate professor at the Harvard Business School, and I've been studying the future of work, especially the geography of work, for many, many years, even prior to the pandemic. And so this must be strange. And I I seem to
1: remember reading the origin story, how you got into this. Were you provoked by looking
0: at the patent office or was there something else that that triggered your interest? Yeah, so I've been studying uh, geography and migration for a decade now. Uh, So I've been at at Harvard for nine years as a professor and prior to that, I was at Wharton. Uh, And so when I studied migration, I also realised how much cost and pain migration can impose on individuals and families. So it could be dual careers. It could be uh, just the economics of the move. It could be leaving friends and family behind. The aging parent issue, which is worldwide, but especially so in China, where they've had a single-child policy. Um, And so then I, uh, I, I stumbled upon work from anywhere at the patent office back in 2015. And I said, oh, my God, this could solve so much of the geography problem That I've studied for the past so many years, uh, because the patent office was letting folks choose where to live and they could work remotely from those locations. And putting the individual in charge of that decision rather than telling them where to move seemed to be extremely forward thinking. And so that triggered my interest in remote work and work from anywhere.
1: And forgive me, I mean, it seems remarkably progressive for a public sector organization to have come up with this innovation. Do you know anything of the origin story of how they came about
0: doing this? Yeah, so I guess uh, one of the big motivations for them <laughs> was they were running out of office space. And right. the location that the patent office was was based in, Alexandria, Virginia, is very expensive. It's very close to Washington, D.C. But also the second issue that they were facing was uh, everyone doesn't want to come and live in Washington, D.C., especially if you're working in software, for instance. And many of the folks that they needed to examine software patents could not be found in Washington, D.C. So they thought of this as both a cost-cutting strategy, but also a hiring strategy, because now they could hire from colleges in California and let people live just there. Uh, So I think they got this really, really early, and I'm, I'm really really i was delighted to be part of that journey now tell me this so so look the world has transformed
1: so you found yourself studying this and i suspect when you were first doing it you didn't think it would land you on the front of the harvard business review but there's been so much keen interest now that people have been looking at it what do you consider the state of where we are right now it seems like this almost ubiquitous hybrid experiment how would you summarize
0: where we are No, I think we are in a moment of time and it's a generational shift uh, and not to sound too dramatic, but I think what is going to happen and is happening is we are unshackling millions of individuals from the constraint of geography. Uh, And so prior to the pandemic, beyond the patent office, I had studied many startups who were also allowing folks to work from anywhere So these would be the all remote startups that don't have any offices. So GitLab and Zapier and EXP and Doist, I've studied quite a few of them. But since the pandemic, this has become mainstream. So when Twitter and Facebook and Airbnb and PwC and Deloitte and companies of this magnitude embrace work from anywhere, it allows millions of people around the world to work from anywhere. And so it then creates a competitive dynamic in the marketplace, in the labor market, which my prediction is will force all companies to move in that direction uh, over the next few years. so fascinating, isn't it? Because as you say there, a lot of startup
1: companies or a lot of organizations that maybe have got young employees uh, seem to be very actively embracing it. And... As far as I can tell, they seem to be weathering the challenges it presents pretty robustly. So to what extent do you think the model of work that we are comfortable with, to what extent does it only exist in our heads
0: rather than being a norm that we seem to be drawn back to? It's more of a habit. That's true. And, you know, even prior to the pandemic, uh, all remote companies had adopted the work from anywhere model. Uh, And so that meant that every single part of the organization was working from anywhere, not just the coders. The marketing people were working from anywhere. The sales team was working from anywhere. The C-suite was working from anywhere. So they had perfected a set of processes and management practices uh, that allow any organization or any team to work from anywhere. Uh, And so I think what's happening now is, larger companies. Uh, and they were doing this. Just one thing I should mention, Bruce, is this, for the startups, this is a brilliant solution because it allows you to scale the company uh, in an early stage really fast without taking a lot of real estate into the balance sheet. So what happens is, and I've written about this in my EXP uh, study, EXP is a real estate company. And they are Uh, essentially all over the U.S. Uh, They're valued, I believe, more than Redfin now. And they've always been all remote since 2009 after they were founded. And the reason uh, the founder went all remote was uh, he couldn't afford uh, office space in 2009 because of the economic downturn in 2008. But what happened was because he went all remote and didn't have offices, the owner retained more equity. And at the stage of IPO, That made the owner richer. So I think my prediction is startups will all uh, migrate, and they've already started doing it. Like Every startup I've spoken to now has embraced the all-remote, work-from-anywhere model. But for the existing companies that have built up campuses and have leased office space, they are transforming. So that's the new thing. That's happening for the past two years. Uh,
1: tell me this then. So I guess one of the things that I really reflected on when I was thinking about what you'd said was how, to what extent the desires of top talent in the job market end up moving the entire job market. And, and maybe that might seem unrealistic, but little steps along the way top talent demanding email on their mobile devices or top talent demanding laptops that gave them flexibility to work in places that they previously couldn't. And when top talent has demanded these things, they've become norms in the industry. To what extent then do you think we're going to have the norms changed by
0: the expectations of of a small category of employees? That is absolutely what's going to happen. So this is the competitive dynamic that I was talking about. So what's going to happen is there are in every industry now I've looked at, there are a few companies, which I call the pioneers, which have embraced work from anywhere and are implementing a flexible hybrid model, which allows workers to work from anywhere. Some companies are going to resist and try to move back in time. And other companies in the middle are just waiting and watching and they're trying to figure out what to do. But the the thing that's going to happen is the companies that are the pioneers, they will become talent magnets. So they will attract uh, the best of talent going ahead, and they will retain their best workers. The companies that are trying to drag uh, themselves back in time will lose, not everyone, they will lose some of their best talent. So some of their best talent will get calls from competitors, from headhunters, and they will move. And that dynamic will force these laggards to ultimately catch up. So when I talk to CEOs and boards and CHROs, what I tell them is you will have to change either today or tomorrow. And the choice is, do you want to be ahead of the game and become a talent magnet? Or do you want to bleed some of your best employees? And then will you be forced to adapt to this new dynamic?
1: It's quite stark. Now, what you're specifically saying there, there's a quotation of yours that I use all the time because I just find it. It forces people to... Reflect. So, so let me read you this, because I guess what you're saying there is not flexibility. You're saying the extremes of flexibility. The quotation I love from you here is there are two kinds of companies. One is going to embrace work from anywhere. And the second is in denial. I feel those companies will lose their workforce. You have to make a choice as a leader, what, comp- what kind of company you want to lead. So you're not talking about hybrid working. You're not talking about firms need to let workers work from home three days a week. You're
0: saying Firms need to embrace work from anywhere. No, so so just to clarify that, so what, what I love, what I have come to sort of like as my own mental model is this model where employees can work from anywhere for a vast majority of their time. So let's, I've, I've, I've talked about the twenty five twenty five model of TCS uh, where employees can work from anywhere for 75% of their time. But for the remaining 25% of their time, they have to be co-located with their teams. And so this is a model that I've been calling flexible hybrid. I don't like the model of going to the office every week because that is not going to allow you to work from anywhere. So what the flexible hybrid model does is it allows each team, the unit of analysis becomes the team. It's not the company or the individual. Each team decides when to structured that co-location and some teams could say we will do it once a month because you know what we live all close to london but we can all come down to converge in london for for a week and spend uh, two three days together some other teams could say no that's not going to work for us because we live far away some of us live in portugal some live in spain some live in even in the u.s so we will meet once a quarter for two weeks and that is going to be our 25% time. Uh, and for some teams, it could be 25% co-location. Some teams, it could be 10% co-location. Each team has to decide when to co where to co and make that decision part of the annual planning cycle. But in reality, then, what happens is for most of the year, we can work from anywhere. And we come down, we converge occasionally in an office. It could be an office. It could be an off-site. So the all-remote companies don't have offices. They meet in Hawaii, and that's totally cool. And the reason we come together as a team is not to work. It is to build deep social connections. It is to mentor each other. It's to get to know each other really, really well. It's to go for team dinners and lunches and hikes and make memories so that when we leave and for the airport, we know each other so well We can rely on each other and trust each other while we are working from far away. So that is the model. Work from anywhere doesn't mean that we will never, ever see people in in, in person. Work from anywhere means you will occasionally meet the team at a frequency and at a location that works for everyone on the team. So fascinating. Can I ask where the 25% come from?
1: Would Would you consider that to be like a stabilizer, wheels, level because when we see organizations like automatic they have something not a million miles away from that but their model is one week one week out of every quarter so i guess it's eight percent of time rather than 25 percent of time um and so is the 25 percent just as we get accustomed to these or is it just reflecting
0: employee turnover where's the where did the number come from in your head so, it's a, it's a number, so the two sources. So, my work with TCS, which is a large giant tech company, they adopted the 25% model. Okay. Uh, but then, subsequently, I ran a field experiment uh, with HR workers. And in that setting, what we found was that about 23% of days co located was optimal. Uh, so, it was the first experimental study to determine what extent of co-location is optimal. Now, I take that with a grain of salt because that was what was optimal in that experiment. Now, for some teams, that optimal number could be 10% percent co As you said, for Automatic or for GitLab, they meet one week a quarter, and that, that's probably fine for them. So when I, when I talk about 25, I always say it's a range. And each team needs to decide, not more than 25, so each team needs to decide where in the range of 10% to 25% co-location do you lie, and then when is that time going to be, and then structuring that time in a way that the entire team can show up uh, when 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 that co-location event is happening. Because effectively, I
1: guess what you're saying is that that, you know, we're, we're very comfortable now, right now, having a discussion about how many days a week in the office or organisations are sort of setting these little yardsticks. And what you're effectively saying there is, look, the amount of time is around the, the equivalent of one and a half, one and a quarter days a week. However, you're going to get more value from rather than this sort of fragmented ships in the night style approach that people are doing at the moment immersing yourself in connection, discussion that possibly takes more than a day, that is a really intentional session that maybe
0: is three or four days, but less frequent. Is that right? You're absolutely right, uh, Bruce. So a day a week is optimal, but what we're doing in this model is bunching those days a week together in a way that teams can meet once a month or once a quarter. Because then not only is that together more intentional and social and really leads to some social, uh, deep social connection. It also allows people to then work from anywhere for the rest of the quarter. Because if you have to go to an office one day a week in London every week, then you cannot live in Manchester. Uh, But if you have to go to London once a quarter uh, and be in London with your team once a quarter, for the rest of the quarter, you can live in Manchester. And in fact, one of the best practices is for companies, so GitLab and Automatic and all these companies, Zapier, they pay for your ticket when you are coming down for that off-site once a quarter. Uh, and they arrange for some sort of way for you to stay in London or the off-site location or wherever, uh, because the company is saving a lot on real estate. So part of that savings can be invested in arranging for the travel of the teams. So you're right.
1: Have you have you made any effort to try and estimate the savings?
0: So, for the uh, yes, we have. So, uh, it is uh, it's 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 of course uh, it's both. It's two things: it's savings on existing real estate because now, of course, you don't need a desk for it. And first of all, I think the office of the future is going to be extremely different from the office of the past. You may not even need an office. Uh, you could meet in an offsite. Uh, and that that could be fine, but if you if you pla- if you if companies still want to have an office, that office should be a a, a clubhouse, or as as Dean as as Nita Noria said, or that office needs to be a place which fosters social connections. And Dropbox and Twitter are doing exactly that. They are breaking down the cubicles. They're setting up community halls. They're setting up places where people teams can get together. And brainstorm, cook a meal together, really hang out together, have like a social fun event. Uh, I, I, I would encourage, uh, you know. So you might need a little bit of of, of working space as hot desking model, but the office of the future really should take the form of an offsite or a clubhouse, uh, and should foster social connections rather than having cubicles and cornered offices. We should totally tear down that that architecture and rebuild. The office of the future. Now I can definitely see along the way you
1: articulate, I think beautifully, the societal benefits of this, that, you know, that I think you describe um, military wives who find themselves in this forced peripatetic life where they go to travel from place to place. And actually they have to compromise their career. And, and what you would describe here is that, you know, here's a model where we actually enable these people to achieve their full potential. So, the strikes me there's a lot of individual benefits and, uh, and maybe I'd love to hear the other individual benefits. How do you, uh, maybe, maybe you could sort of articulate
0: that for me first, actually. What do you see the individual benefits of this being? Well, there are many individual benefits. I think for decades we have really, as I like to call, like shackled people with the chains of geography. We have forced people to live where they don't want to live. Uh, so, you know, starting with dual career situations, which has been a nightmare for so many families for decades. And research has shown how in dual career situations, typically the woman has always got to sacrifice. So you're working in London, you get a great promotion in Liverpool, uh, you can't leave because your spouse doesn't want to go to Liverpool, has nothing to do there, or the kids are in high school in London, they don't want to go. Uh, so what does the woman do? The woman just foregoes of that new promotion or the opportunity. Uh, but if the new company allows the woman to live in London and continue to work in that new responsibility, you don't have to go to Liverpool. So I think dual careers would be a huge, huge sort of like, um, uh, you know, it will be work from anywhere is a solution to the dual career issue. It solves immigration pain. Uh, it solves the issue of, uh, you know, folks having aging parents and you can go and see them. So this is in particular, an issue for Chinese migrants Mm -hmm. because they've had the single child policy. So leaving the parents behind in the small town or village and permanently being a migrant in a large city is just not working for them. Um, It's the economic cost of migration. You know, you work as a a waitress or uh, as as a dental hygienist, but you live in London and you have to pay London real estate cost. You could do the same job uh in in a smaller town in, in in the UK uh with significantly lower housing costs and make more real income you'll have more money in your pocket so i think work from anywhere is a blessing for individuals in countless forms i've like i've documented over the years hundreds of stories that i'm actually i'm writing a book on all of this bruce so the book will be out next year. Now tell me this, because, because winning
1: over the people who will benefit from it is the easy part, but the hard part is explaining to the organizations or explaining to maybe the middle managers why this is beneficial. I was on a conversation last week about a four-day week, and the, the responses were very strongly from middle managers who were maybe tasked with achieving something from the from the boardroom and they were just finding it very hard to manage in this new world. So, so how do you make the case of this to maybe those managers who can't necessarily see the, the societal benefits or the altruistic benefits? And, and you must have a lot of big firms who are talking to you now. How do you make the case
0: for, of it to them? So I'll talk about the societal benefits in a minute, but let's, let's make the business case because that's what this, the board and the CHRO and the CEO and the middle managers care about. And the business case is very compelling. So, if a company embraces work from anywhere, you have four benefits as an organization. The first benefit, which I can't reiterate enough, is hiring. Because if you adopt work from anywhere, now you can hire from anywhere. You are no longer constrained by the labor market of the local city or town where you have an office. And that is especially uh, awesome for startups because they are competing for talent against large companies. And now you don't have to hire the coder in London. You can hire the coder in Kenya or the coder in Bangladesh uh, that you didn't know existed even like before you adopted this policy. So hiring, and this is true universally, You know, finding talent is the most important source of competitive advantage. And work from anywhere makes the whole world, the whole globe, your labor market. So that's the first reason why companies should adopt work from anywhere. The second reason is, uh, given my research, I found in some cases, work from anywhere leads to a productivity increase. Uh, So I'm not going to claim this is going to happen every time, but I've seen no evidence so far on the contrary. So global hiring, higher productivity, lower real estate costs, and then finally, it leads to a more equal workplace. So, since you are going to hire more globally, you're going to hire more women, because women prefer work from anywhere, your workforce will be more equal on the dimension of gender, on the dimension of cultural diversity, on the dimension of racial diversity, and every other diversity that you can think of. So, if you don't care about hiring, diversity, productivity, and cost savings, you know I don't know what you care about. (laughs) So, for me work from anywhere is a win-win-win. It's a win for the individual, it's a win for the company, and it's a win for society. The interesting
1: thing about what you've articulated is that I think the, the things that you value remain the same that we all value right now. You've you've said that there's this clearly a benefit to employees being next to each other, talking face-to-face with each other, sort of finding some degree of f- affiliation and connection with, with being around each other. So, so that's inarguable. The, so, so what pushback are you getting on this from firms that you talk to? A, a firm saying maybe, but not yet. A firm's trying to come to terms with the financial situation of the economy. What's the pushback that you hear?
0: So once, uh, you know, the, the CEO and the CHR and the board gets the whole model, I don't see a lot of pushback. It becomes then how do we implement this? What kind of organizational processes do we need to support work from anywhere? How do we onboard people? How do we mentor people? How do we structure the co location time? How do we do uh, virtual social interactions? How do we uh, codify knowledge? And actually, my book is going to be a manual of all of that. So I'm going to be talking about uh, step by step for every organizational process. How do you re-engineer your organization to be able to support work from anywhere? So I think most of the discussions I'm having with really senior folks now is no longer on the why question. I think they are convinced. It's more about can we implement this organizational change in an effective way so that we can uh, reap the, the maximum benefits from this policy.
1: One of the things that appears to be clear from what you've said is that the skills that will be required to make this work are somewhat different. So one of the things that GitLab has is it has this, I think, 8,000-page resource, this sort of single source of the truth, which is searchable to, to enable people to understand things. And in fact, one of the things that I've definitely heard as people have returned to the office, they've said, wow, the new colleagues, the new on-boards don't necessarily, they haven't necessarily learned how to do things efficiently because some of those casual interactions you'd have done over a a desk and sort of in conversation with each other have been lost. So it strikes me that some of the skills we need um, or, you know, you mentioned something else, which is if a presentation is created, someone needs to set time aside to record them talking through it. It's like there's actually lots of little crumbs of work that are going to need to be done differently. And I, I guess you know, that requires some degree of shared knowledge, some degree of shared learning, of rec- helping us recognize what the gaps are between the old way of
0: working and this new form. That's correct. So, uh, and so what I've done in my article, but I'm going to do more extensively in the book, is talk about 10 organizational processes where uh, senior managers and middle managers need to assess their capabilities of how well they can do the processes and then move to the new capability. But let's take one. So, you talked about knowledge codification, the work from anywhere organization needs to read and write. Uh, as much as they speak and listen, because we have all been accustomed to joining meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting uh, in the physical office and now on Zoom, and we talk and listen. And that model is, there are benefits of that model, but there are also serious weaknesses of the model, and there are several weaknesses. So, the first weakness is, uh, in the meetings that we have in, in a physical conference room or a Zoom room, Typically, the manager, the leader, and the extroverts speak. The introverts are not contributing a lot of ideas. Uh, And so we lose the voice of a large chunk of the employee population. The other huge weakness is we are all reacting in real time. So Bruce says something, I think of something off the cuff, and I, I, I react just in that moment. But if Bruce sent me something in writing, and I took my dog out for a nice walk and it was a nice uh, London afternoon, then probably my creative juices would be flowing and I would come back with a much more thoughtful response. And that is the spirit of the, the GitLab handbook or an internal Wikipedia where you sort of codify knowledge. And that's just one of the 10 organizational processes that I talk about uh, in my article or my book. Uh, and you have to do a diagnostic because no organization is there yet so you need to know which of the capabilities are going to be a focus for your organization and then accordingly you have to run pilots and you have to you have to experiment internally about how how to make the change. So this is quite an organizational transformation project. I wonder if the reason why some people are so fearful of this is
1: that effectively what you're describing there is a version of work that is engineered around thoughtful introversion. And, you know, I, I don't want to associate introversion with intelligence. You know, like it, it's very easy to say extroversion is this noisy thing. But introversion is more thoughtful and intelligent. But I, I was listening to something glorious today, and, and the, I've, I've included a clip of it in the notes below, in the show notes below. I was listening to something glorious today of someone describing an office that they worked in in the 1980s. And at one corner of the office, you had all the salespeople, and they, he said you had to. These salespeople spent the entire day on the phone. That was like their means of interacting. And then, alongside them, there was the, the sort of the the rest of the teams in constant verbal discussion. Or he, he said actually, you had writers there using typewriters. So you had this sort of high decibel noise. Output was was volume in a very literal sense. Now we've moved to a world where maybe people who, to some extent, grew up in that era, who learned that, you know, the words that you were able to use in a presentation or the showmanship you were able to bring was what determined your success. Now we're saying to them, you need to craft beautiful, maybe succinct or expressive language. You've got to get things down on paper in a far more composed way. You can understand why people might be, anxious that this is upending the skills that they'd prevailed with right in the midst or the to to, you know the middle late end of their career it must be
0: daunting for a lot of people yeah and my response to that Bruce so first of all I acknowledge that and my response to that is it is not moving from one extreme to the other extreme so there are some companies in the world which are asynchronous first and they would try to read and write everything rather than talk and listen. I feel, and that's why I feel, every company and every team needs to pilot this. And there is a nice optimal balance. So I'll give you one example for a team that I've been working with for a while now. And what they have adopted now is they say, we have a Friday meeting, which is chaotic and loud and high decibel and high energy. And that's great because some of us really enjoy that. And they do that meeting on Zoom. Or Teams or whatever platform they use. But over the course of the week, before we enter that meeting, we are going to share ideas through reading and writing. So we have a shared document. We are all going to write on that shared document. We are all going to contribute our ideas. So you write something, I read it, I react to it, I add my comments. And academics do that all the time, by the way. We've been working, I work across time zones with all my co-authors on shared documents and we edit documents together. And so this team is trying to do the same. And once we have had a good measure of each other's ideas, we entered this high decibel, high energy meeting on Friday to take a decision. And one of the ground rules they've implemented is that in that high decibel, high energy meeting on Friday... It's okay to discuss ideas that have been debated on that Google Sheet all through the week. That's totally okay. What is not okay is for someone to say, hey, I have a new idea. If you have a new idea that no one has seen, that idea has to be deferred till next week because that's something that you need to put the data on and you know cite your sources, put an Excel spreadsheet to support your idea, so that everyone gets to read and write before they talk and listen. So the reason I'm telling this story is I think talking and listening is a, is a, is a, is a wonderful skill that leads to deep, deep thinking and, and participation from introverts, high decibel uh, listening. and talking has a different set of energy and benefit associated to it. I think the teams need to embrace the fact that these are both tools of communication, and they can be optimally combined. Uh, and each team needs to find its own rhythm, so that's that's you know where my mind is on this.
1: If firms are presented with the inevitability of this, that this is a choice that isn't theirs to make but a moment for them to wake up to. If you were to project forward five, ten years, how far do you think this will have already impacted the workforce? And that's, I recognize how ludicry, ludicrously impossible that is, but how will this have transformed the workforce in five years, in 10
0: years, in 20 years? How how quickly do you think this is going to take hold? So I think, you know, it's it's tough to predict the exact, uh, you know, trajectory, but I'm very, very optimistic given the signs I'm seeing Uh that this is going to be a dominant form of work uh, in the long term. and that long term, let's call it 10 years, right? And uh, it's going to be uh, true across industries. So I just published an article where I studied the Unilever experiment with remote work in manufacturing. Uh, And what they did is they converted a whole factory in Brazil into a factory that could be operated remotely. Uh, so, I don't think this is a, a, a tech-only phenomena. It's 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 certainly a pervasive phenomena that is shaping healthcare, retail, manufacturing, services, and every single industry I've looked at. Uh, you know, financial services, and and you know, I think it's just borne out by a simple truth that it's a win-win-win. It's good for the individual. It's good for the companies. And it's good for society uh, because in the model of work from anywhere, what happens is talent gets more equally distributed across the world. So smaller towns, uh, which have lost talent to the large cities for decades, now get talent back. Uh, Emerging markets, which have lost talent to the West for decades, get talent back. Uh, So I feel just given that fundamental strength that it's good for the individual, it's good for companies, and it's good for society, Uh, forms of of work from anywhere will take shape across industries and across countries all over the world. Wow. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. Um, I find, um,
1: you know, right now we're in such a state of uncertainty and people are just trying to get their head around things. And it's actually when I read your work i got such clarity about the inevitability of these things. And then it merely becomes how quickly we're willing to take on board what's going to be inevitable. So uh, a wonderful opportunity to talk to you. And I do hope I get the chance to talk to you when the, the book gets published. Thank you, Bruce. Look forward. Thank you so much. Thank you to Professor Raj Chowdhury. I'm so grateful for that fascinating discussion lots of details in the show notes lots of the things i talked about i'm so grateful for the conversation feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on social media. Best place to connect with all of the stuff related to the podcast is on the newsletter. You'll find it at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. In the next couple of weeks, if you're interested in workplace culture, I am giving away a free course about workplace culture. And if you want to find how you can get that for free, you need to sign up to the newsletter and I'll be sharing details in a couple of weeks' time. So grateful for your company today. See you next time.